As we turn our attention now to the reading and proclamation of Scripture, let us bow for a word of prayer. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, where two or three are gathered, you have promised to be there in the midst of them. And so we have gathered here today confident that you are with us. And we pray that now, by your Spirit, you would speak to us your eternal word. And by that same Spirit, we ask that you would give us ears to hear and courage to obey. All these prayers we make in your holy name. Amen. The New Testament lesson today comes from the book of James, chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. I invite you now to listen for God's word to you. Do you suppose that it is for nothing that the scripture says, God yearns jealously for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But God gives all the more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. And our Old Testament lesson this morning comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. For the time being, this will be our last sermon in this sermon series on the book of Genesis, Stewardship season starts next week, and so uh, beginning next week and going on through the month of October, our sermon series will be around stewardship themes. But I do hope we can come back to Genesis before the year's over, because we haven't gotten to the flood yet or the Tower of Babel, so there's still some more good stuff to cover. Our text this morning is the preamble to the flood, and it is admittedly a very difficult text. It's theologically challenging for reasons that you will see in a minute, but it's also just kind of weird. Uh, We meet characters in this text that we don't really know uh, what their identity is. Uh, The sons of God seem to be some kind of divine creature that's involved in this text, and we'll also meet the Nephilim. Now, Nephilim is just a translated Hebrew word. Uh, The Hebrew meaning of the word is fallen ones, but we don't know... Uh, who these creatures actually are. The author of Genesis sort of mentions them as though everyone listening would have known, oh yeah, the Nephilim, we know who they are. Um, But the years have obscured their identity from us, so there's a lot that we don't understand too easily in this text. But I think it's better to preach the difficult texts rather than just skip over them. And I do think this text makes a little more sense in the context of the rest of Genesis, Because, as you'll see, there are some overlapping themes that we have already seen in uh, our previous readings from Genesis that can help illuminate this text as well. So with all of that being said, I invite you to listen once again for God's word to you this morning as it comes to us from Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. When people began to multiply on the face of the ground, and daughters were born to them, The sons of God saw that they were fair, and they took wives for themselves of all that they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in mortals forever, for they are flesh. Their days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were in the earth in those days and also afterward, 
when the sons of God went into the daughters of humans who bore children to them. These were the heroes that were of old, warriors of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the human beings I have created, people together with animals and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I made them. But Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One day when I was in middle school, I made a mistake that revealed to me that my parents loved me so much that I could grieve them to their heart. I was a confident, loud eighth grader, and I had plenty of fun in the back of the bus with my classmates. And one day our bus driver had had enough of our loud conversations and games, and she did the unthinkable. She moved me to the front of the bus. And I had to sit between two sixth graders, three to a seat in the very first row. And this was to be my fate indefinitely, not just for that day. The evening after this new arrangement, I was complaining about my plight to my mother at dinner. And I vowed that I would rather walk home from school than ride a bus driven by such a horrible bus driver. The next afternoon after school, I called my mom to tell her that I was going to uphold my vow and walk home from school just as I said I would. My parents had a rule that I always had to call them and tell them wherever I was going. But when my mom didn't answer the phone, I figured she would remember what I had said at the table the night before, and my friend Mike and I set out on our four-mile walk home across Denver. And when I finally approached my home, I was surprised to see a police car in front of my house, my dad's car home early from work. And as I walked up the front lawn to my house, my mother came running out, tears streaming down her face, my father close behind, and after a long and firm embrace, I realized that they were pretty angry at me. They were heartbroken at the thought that I might have been abducted or lost, and their emotions were running high. And as you might imagine, I got in pretty big trouble. And the lesson I learned from this whole experience is that the relationship between children and their parents has a certain ordering to it. As long as children live in the parent's home, the parent makes the rules because parents know what's best for their children. Children can have great relationships with their parents so long as they respect their parents' authority and trust that the rules are there in their best interest. And parents can have great relationships with their children so long as they provide the necessary structure in which their children can thrive. It's when the proper ordering of this relationship between parents and children begins to blur or deteriorate that the relationship can no longer thrive and things start to go wrong. This is true of all relationships, isn't it? Employees can have great relationship with their bosses so long as they do their jobs well and so long as the bosses maintain a good working environment. 
spouses can have good relationships with one another, so long as each maintains the proper balance between autonomy and interdependence. Friends can maintain good relationships insofar as the trust that is formed between them is upheld and each feels safe being vulnerable and genuine. There's a proper ordering to all of our relationships, and the same is true with our relationship with God. God created us, after all, for relationship, and it's toward a deeper relationship with God that God is always beckoning us. But because we are the creature and God is the creator, our relationship with God is always on God's terms because God knows what's best for us. It's when we begin to act as though we can dictate those terms, as though we know better than God, as though we were the creator rather than the creature, it's then that our relationships with God can begin to break down. Something of the sort is happening in our bizarre text from Genesis today. The distinction between creator and creature is fixed and essential for relationship between human and God to thrive. But it came to pass that when people began to multiply on the face of the ground, so too did human ambition. The result is that some kind of divine being, those the text calls the sons of God, take wives among the humans and Nephilim hybrids are born to them. Nephilim are some kind of new creation or new creature, one that has blurred the line between divine and human and violated the boundaries that are essential for human relationship with God to flourish. And so God reacts similar to, similarly to the way my parents reacted when I violated their trust by breaking their rule about telling them where I was. God reacts with angry grief born out of the sadness and fear of losing a loved one. Like a parent who can no longer tolerate a wayward child's aberrant behavior, God vows to reclaim the imperative boundary between human and divine. Now, it is surprising and somewhat confusing to encounter the emotional and reactionary God of this particular text. How can an all-knowing God regret making human beings, or as the NRSV says, be sorry for making human beings? Surely God does not suffer from any kind of ignorance, right? And isn't God's resolve to destroy humanity a little bit of an overreaction? I mean, it's not exactly the kind of discipline that leads to growth and maturity. The punishment seems to overshoot the crime. Well, what we encounter in this particular passage are the benefits and the limitations of metaphorical speech. The metaphor here presented offers a particular kind of illustration. It's meant to help us understand God's perspective. God is described with an anthropomorphism that is in characteristically human terms. God regrets making human beings and grieves creation to God's very heart. This is an image that is deeply moving to readers and evokes the severity of the situation. It conjures the image of my frantic, heartbroken parents weeping angrily over me in a messy mixture of love and disappointment. 
It's like a person who is so heartbroken over the loss of their beloved dog that they vow never again to get another pet because it's too hard when they're gone. Or someone who feels so heartbroken over a romantic relationship that ends that they declare they wish they never would have met that person in the first place. This is the sort of sadness that close relationships sometimes subject us to, right? That's the risk we take when we choose to love. And it's clear from this text that somehow God knows this pain too. Metaphors in scripture, whether ancient anthropomorphisms or picturesque psalmist descriptions or New Testament parables, metaphors serve to make one particular point in a poignant and profound way. And in this case, the point is simple yet intense. Human rebellion and pride have severed the relationship between creator and creature. And God will not indulge human attempts to be God. God will put a stop to it so that proper relationship with God can be restored. Our text today is not the first time that humans have tried to play God. Adam and Eve have already eaten the forbidden fruit with its promise to be like God, knowing good and evil. And it certainly won't be the last time that humans try to play God. In fact, right after the flood and the Tower of Babel incident, the humans decide to build a tower reaching to heaven in order to make a name for themselves, only for God to scatter them and confuse their languages. This is the sin of idolatry with which God is always contending all throughout the Bible. Idolatry is at its foundation a human attempt to play God by choosing and declaring who God ought to be. Idolatry is any attempt to tell God how to be God, any attempt to worship the God we want rather than the God who is, the God whom we know in Jesus Christ. And whenever idolatry occurs, it is fundamentally a rejection of God. Today's incident in Genesis is only the beginning of this sad pattern in our human relationship with God. In the end, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ will be the ultimate rejection of God's very self. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, I don't try to play God, or I don't tell God what to do. And of course, that's not what we think to ourselves. But anytime we approach God with certain conditions, telling God how to do the divine job, or looking to somehow bargain with God, we're in fact playing into this dynamic. God, if I just get this promotion, then I'll spend more time with my family. God, if we just get this candidate into elected office, then you will bless us. God, if you're real, show yourself to us in dramatic fashion so that I cannot be mistaken that it's you. But when we put a precondition on our relationship with God, we're setting ourselves up for disappointment. Because all such conditions we might attach to our faith are ultimately a failure to approach God with open palms, trusting that God's goodness and grace will encounter us. Conditions are always transactional, after all, and therefore dependent on some merit on our behalf. But 
when we approach God as creatures to their creator, we find ourselves open to discovering just how vast and how deep is God's love for us, just how surprisingly and faithfully God provides for our needs in ways that we might never imagine. God doesn't need to be convinced to be with us. It's God's deepest desire to be known, but not as we would have God be, but as God truly is, on God's own terms. And in the end, any attempt to manipulate God or gain sway over God leaves us in a disordered relationship with the one who loves us. God's emotional turmoil at this disordering is described elaborately in our passage today. But the overall scope of Scripture affirms that God's actions are always for the sake of human redemption. This text poses many underlying questions about God's nature and God's emotions that are theologically challenging. But what we do know is clear and weighty enough from the text, and that is that the relationships between human and God have become disordered, and God is heartbroken about it. The good news, though, is that God's word of judgment is never the last word. Just as my parents were angry at me because of their love for me, so also God's judgment, no matter how harsh, serves the greater purpose of restoring God's relationship with us, with the creation God made, and with the creatures God loves. The judgment in today's passage, to be sure, is as severe as any, and yet the passage concludes with a remarkable word of grace that illuminates for us the redemption that is sure to follow. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The word favor in Hebrew is the same word as the word grace. And so it's right here in this peculiar, inexplicable passage that we find the word grace in the Bible for the very first time. How about that? Right in the midst of an intense conflict that follows human refusal to respect the boundaries in our relationship with God, we encounter the word grace. So although this text leaves us with much that seems too immense for us to understand, what we do see is that God's judgment will not be final. What we do see is that though our sin severs our relationship with God, God's favor and God's grace are still to be found. The grace bestowed upon Noah in his broken and chaotic age is a foretaste of the grace bestowed upon us through our Lord Jesus Christ. And however broken and chaotic our age might also be, the grace of Jesus Christ still comes to us to mend our relationship with God and lead us in a way everlasting. Hallelujah. God is faithful still. Thanks be to God. Amen.